Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. Conflicted loyalties, a power struggle, the lives of loved ones hanging in the balance, a choice of whether to stay and fight or flee. This may well sound like the conundrum I faced at the cradle of elites, the school where I worked in Western China, in the final weeks of the school year. But no, today we turn to the story of Lin Biao, the paranoid hypochondriac who was once upon a time lined up to become leader of China. That Lin didn't become the leader of China was probably a sigh of relief for Lin himself, who had bitten off more than he could chew. But the alternative was hardly better. And what exactly happened is one of modern China's most enduring mysteries. We've touched on Lin Biao before. He was the military leader who fell in love with the persecuted and murdered playwright and adopted daughter of Zhou Enlai, Sun Weishu. That was in episode thirty-two, The Rising Sun. But we didn't get to his paranoid personality and his curious final showdown, and now seems to be the time to do it. Born in 1907 in Hubei into a well-off family, Lin Biao got involved in the student movements which characterized the troubled early years of the Republic of China. He went to the military academy headed up by Chiang Kai-shek, where he also met Zhou Enlai, China's future premier. Ultimately, he joined Zhou and became a communist, cutting his teeth in battles against Chiang's nationalists in the Chinese Civil War. He joined the Long March, which cemented Mao Zedong as the undisputed leader of the communists, and fought the Japanese in China's extended version of World War II. Then, after the Reds booted Chiang's nationalists over to Taiwan, Lin was listed as the youngest of China's ten marshals, the army's top team. Not bad. For a perpetually unwell hypochondriac addicted to opium and morphine. By the late 1960s, Lin was a powerful man, the defense minister, and one of Mao's favorites. He converted a large property in Suzhou into his own bunker, where he would stay with his family and servants in the winter months, or just to get away from it all. The bunker is still there as a museum dedicated to Lin's checkered role in China's revolutionary experiment. Plaques on the wall detail his troubles: how he felt sick because of the wind and wouldn't walk outside. When he went for a ride in his car, he'd get a car to take him to the car. He avoided sunshine and water, having the bathrooms dismantled, and only washing with wet towels dabbed on him by a servant. It's reported elsewhere that Lin refused to drink liquids, even rejecting a toast with Stalin in 1950. Pretty brave move, if you ask me. Lin's wife had to keep him hydrated with the moisture of steamed buns. Lin's house had to be twenty-one degrees exactly. He didn't like to be cold, but anything over twenty-one, and he'd sweat terribly. All noises and disturbances were banned. Such was his nerves. At night, no one was permitted to wake him up. This was not a man suited for the highest political offices in a radically unstable country. If anyone knows what Lin's ailments really were, then it remains a secret. But more than a few doctors have diagnosed him with manic depression, 
and it's clear that alongside hypochondria, he suffered with mental health issues. Strangely enough, the discomfort seemed to float away when Lin found himself addressing hundreds of thousands of adoring young revolutionaries. And lucky for him, he'd get more than a few chances to do that. It was now the swinging 60s, and China was taking it to the max. There were a number of head honchos who held the top ranks within the party on the eve of the Cultural Revolution in 1966. They represented both sides of the looming internal power struggle. Although, the term power struggle doesn't begin to do justice to the onslaught that was about to happen. On the one side, you had the Maoist radicals, like Kang Sheng, Chen Bo Da, and Lin Biao himself. Opposite them, you had the powerful moderates who were working to rebuild the struggling post-Great Leap Forward China, President Liu Xiaoqi, Deng Xiaoping, and the mayor of Beijing, Peng Zheng. The premier, Zhou Enlai, was also a moderate, but he was canny and capable enough to stay in Mao's good books. The rest, not so much. Mao's prestige had been greatly dented after the Great Leap Forward, and events in the Soviet Union had given him the jitters. Khrushchev had denounced Stalin, and Mao didn't like that. With his purges, his collectivization schemes, his famines and whatnot, Mao had a similar CV to Stalin. Then, Khrushchev was ousted and Brezhnev took over, and Mao didn't like that either. All these regicidal tendencies. Mao had taken a back seat in the running of China, but he was worried that his comrades would get some dangerous ideas from Russia and relegate him further. Lin Biao had risen to the position of defence minister in 1959 after the previous holder of the post, Peng Dehuai, had vacated the position in disgrace. You might recall that he had taken Mao's suggestion to be critical about the Great Leap Forward a little too literally. That Mao was willing to destroy a comrade like Peng, another long marcher and a civil war veteran from the same part of Hunan as Mao himself, showed just how touchy the chairman could be around matters of his legacy. Lin, by contrast, was willing to be Mao's lapdog, and set about reconstituting the People's Liberation Army as a political tool of the party. He published the Little Red Book, which was first given to soldiers, and described by Lin as a spiritual atom bomb. We firmly respond to Comrade Lin Biao's call to study Chairman Mao's works, follow his teachings, and act according to his instructions. We proletarian revolutionaries keep the whole country and the whole world in mind. We will spread the invincible thought of Mao Zedong throughout China and the whole world. He also discovered, or quite possibly invented, Lei Feng's diary, the shining beacon of what it meant to be a good soldier and a good citizen. These were central documents in spreading Maoism to the populace, creating Mao's cult of personality, so that in a few short years, the great helmsman was inescapable. Mao was back, and Lin had made it happen. People are chanting, we want to see Chairman Mao, we want to see Chairman Mao. On this happy evening, Chairman Mao joins us once again. Lin was a few spots down in the party hierarchy, and the people in charge at this moment, pre-1966, were the moderates. But Lin was fervently loyal to Mao, and when all was said and done, Mao was still a demigod in China. His ability to still pull the leaves of power and propaganda was second to none. First, they took down Beijing Mayor Peng Zhen, 
who hadn't supported Mao's attack on Wuhan, the playwright who had written High Ray Dismissed from Office. This play was widely seen as a comment on the way Mao had dismissed Peng Dehuai. And so for the Maoists, this was unacceptably counter-revolutionary. But Peng Jun had supported Wuhan, publishing an article which stated that the Wuhan story was just a cultural debate. Politicians need not concern themselves with it. This didn't do much good. Wuhan went to prison and died, and Peng Jun was removed from all positions. In May 1966, the Cultural Revolution Group took over Peng Jun's responsibilities, and the starting gun on the Cultural Revolution was thereby fired. Never before have the Chinese people been in such high spirits as they are today. Never before has a country been as prosperous and thriving as it is today. That story of the play, Hai Ray Dismissed from Office, was covered way back on episode 6 of this podcast, Xia Jiabang, where we looked at the start of the Cultural Revolution. The great proletarian cultural revolution, initiated and led personally by Chairman Mao, is aimed at eradicating bourgeois ideology, establishing proletarian ideology, remolding people's souls, revolutionizing their thinking, uprooting revisionism, and consolidating and developing the socialist system. It is one of Chairman Mao's great contributions to the world proletarian revolution. And with the cultural revolution underway, Lin teamed up with a gang of four, headed by Mao's wife, Jiang Qing, from the radical hotbed of Shanghai, the city where the CCP was founded. With her taking on the cultural aspects of the movement, Lin dealt with the military aspects. Despite frequently disagreeing, they became a devastating force, inflicting untold terrors on vast numbers of innocent people, unleashing a stupefying political fervour, the likes of which the world has never seen. But while Jiang Qing and the Gang of Four were revolutionary idealists, or at the very least, ruthlessly ambitious enough to tickle the leftist boxes, Lin Biao was just riding a wave. In the summer of 1966, when Mao decided to start turning the screw on his number two, President Liu Xiaoqi, it was Lin who was summoned to give a speech targeting Liu, labelling him a capitalist roader, justifying his demotion. It also justified the turning up of the heat of the Cultural Revolution. Lin was a useful mouthpiece for Mao, but the big man himself wasn't shy about making his wishes known. He wrote his own big character poster encouraging the students to, quote, bombard the headquarters, basically run riot. School stopped classes so that students could get to work defending the revolution, or taking out whatever grievance they had on whoever happened to be in the firing line. Teachers began getting killed by students. It didn't matter that powerful moderates like Liu and Deng were appalled at this turn of events. Their demotions castrated them. Liu's downfall meant Lin's promotion, and he had no choice but to take it. The troubled military marshal had accidentally made himself Mao's deputy, the vice chairman of China's Communist Party. Just as Mao had Jiang Qing, Lin too had an ambitious wife who left a mark on the age. Ye Chun was Lin's second wife, referred to by their children as the director, alongside Lin, the commander. Their son, Lin Li Guo, was in the Air Force, while their daughter, nicknamed Dodo, 
was a writer in the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. Both would have pivotal roles in the tragedy that was to come. Relations in this highly strung house were not easy, especially with Dodo, who tried to kill herself after her mother found some writings critical of Mao and decided to report the discovery to the security service. With Lin being so frequently unwell and vulnerable, his wife Ye had the opportunity to take on responsibilities and carve out a role for herself, but she was thought of as something of a wayward spouse, and rumours circulated about her apparent affairs. The wife of culture minister Lu Dingyi was especially keen on making trouble with these rumours, writing anonymous letters to the Lin family about the affairs. She appears to have had some serious mental health problems, but this gained her no sympathy and no excuses. When Lin Biao took on her husband, the culture minister, for his reluctance to repurpose cultural output for the Maoist cause, he also went for his wife. At the meeting to discuss this high-profile purge, Lin actually testified that his wife had been a virgin when they met and that their children were theirs. One imagines that there was a few awkward glances around the table at that one, but it just goes to show how politics have come to permeate even the most private family details. Anyway, the upshot was that this troublemaking husband and wife were soon removed from the picture, but Lin was not going to escape his stressed out life that easily. By the end of 1966, peasants and workers had been invited, by central decree, to join the student Red Guards in the class struggle. Come 1967 and factions and rivalries were emerging and battles between Red Guards and rebels of all kinds were taking place, each claiming to be the true bearers of the revolutionary torch. Leftist radicals started taking over local government administrations with the blessing of the Cultural Revolution Group, who were at this point effectively running things. But in appending the various structures of government, replacing bureaucrats with ideologues, and having these rival groups taking each other on, the situation was highly unstable. So, Zhou Enlai advised Mao to bring in the PLA wherever they were needed to maintain order. Mao agreed. But for a man paranoid about coups, he wasn't exactly happy about giving the army more responsibilities. Before long, he changed tack again and reined in the PLA disorder was restored. As the head of the army, all this going in and out of favour was highly unnerving for Lin Biao. The competing rivalries came to a head most famously in Wuhan in the summer of 67, where the so-called Million Heroes, a disparate group which were supported by the PLA, engaged in a city-wide war against hundreds of thousands of Red Guards. With the Red Guards on the back foot, Beijing decreed that the army stopped supporting the million heroes and sent high-level representatives to sort things out. Mao Zedong himself travelled there in secret to sprinkle a little of his own charm here and there. By the time the army chief in the city reluctantly withdrew support for the million heroes, his people wouldn't have it, and some of them ended up kidnapping one of the representatives from Beijing. He was released a few hours later, but by then... Mao had fled on the midnight plane out of there, perhaps starting to realise that even the great helmsman might struggle to keep this listing ship off the rocks. Still, Mao and the Cultural Revolution group ultimately got their way. The army leaders in Wuhan were humiliated and dismissed, the million heroes dissipated, and the radicals took over the city. 
reprisal killings against the million heroes began, and Mao got the bright idea of arming the leftists with weapons to balance out their chances against any pockets of resistance. It was inevitable that the paranoid egomaniac Mao Zedong would start to have suspicions about the paranoid recluse Lin Biao, especially with him having command over the army. No matter that Lin had tried to turn down the number two position that Mao had bestowed upon him, and later suggested that Mao become state president alongside chairman. No, for Mao this was just proof that Lin wanted to be vice president. Lin even sold out the army old guard, siding with the Cultural Revolution group against the PLA after that Wuhan incident. But none of this reassured Mao, who by 1970 was convinced that Lin had become too powerful. Lin Biao wants my lungs to rot, Mao told his doctor. Once the taps of distrust were turned on, nothing could stop the flood. But first, Mao had to wind down the revolution and find some targets on whom to pin the blame for things getting so out of hand. Thus, the Cultural Revolution began devouring its own children. The Cultural Revolution group, with Mao's approval, began taking down expendable members of its own ranks. Following the old line that these diehard Maoists were actually counter-revolutionary reactionaries, which is a bit of a mouthful. The absurdities were reaching fever pitch. As for the students, they were sent Shang Shan Xia Shang, or up to the mountains and down to the countryside, in their millions, supposedly to learn from the peasants, but really to keep them out of trouble. By the end of the 1960s, Mao was ready to end his latest revolutionary experiment, Former President Liu Xiaoqi had been tortured to death in prison, and Lin Biao was effectively named number two. Peng Zhen was no longer boss of Beijing, and Deng Xiaoping was out in the countryside somewhere building tractors. A whole lot of others were out of the way too, and no one had any doubts about who was in charge. The big names of the revolution had risen to the top ranks, Kang Shen and Chen Boda among them. Jiang Qing, Madame Mao, was also enjoying unparalleled influence in culture and politics. Then, the events in Czechoslovakia in 1968, where the Soviets had invaded, well, they gave Mao the heebie-jeebies. And in the name of security, order was now needed. It was time to call it a day. If only it was that easy. As we covered in detail recently in episodes 43 to 45, relations with the Soviets at this time were at a seriously low ebb. Armies were amassing and skirmishes were breaking out alongside the Sino-Soviet border. Perhaps he was using his initiative, perhaps he was getting too big for his boots, but Lim Biao decided to mobilise the PLA in preparation for a possible Soviet attack near National Day in 1969. Lin's ability to mobilise the army freaked Mao out, and as 1970 drew on, Lin became more and more convinced that he had fallen out of Mao's favour. Mao was typically cryptic in the way he expressed things, but everyone at the top, including Lin, knew which way the wind was beginning to blow. Back in Lin Biao's Suzhou bunker residence, the plaque on the wall says, From February to March, 1971, Lin Biao, Ye Chun, and their son, Lin Li Guo, 
came to stay in the South Garden for another time. The 571 project, which shocked people of both home and abroad, was brewed under this period. The numbers 571 in Mandarin are a pun on armed insurgency. Another plaque on the bunker wall states that Lin had planned to take power by establishing a state president position. But once this fell through, he resorted to seizing power through force. His son, Lin Li Guo, began the plans, using allies in the Air Force, intending to destroy Mao's train in August 1971. Whether this was a serious attempt to plan a coup remains unanswered. The written draft of Project 571 labels Mao paranoid and a sadist, but it doesn't seem to have the depth necessary to pull off something so extreme. That said, who would write down such a document during a time like this if they weren't sincere about doing something? Either way, it was Lin Li Guo, not the marshal himself, who had written up the plan, possibly to save his dad as the sharks began circling. Ultimately, though, assassination wasn't on the cards. So with the ship poised to hit the fan, Li Guo and his parents decided to flee. The daughter, Dodo, would stay behind. On the night of September 12, 1971, probably with spies relaying troubling behaviour back to Beijing, Zhou Enlai was suspicious enough to call Beidaihe, the seaside resort to the east of Beijing where the Lins were. Zhou requested that the Trident plane there be flown to Beijing, but he was told that it had engine trouble. Then he called Lin's wife, Ye Chun, who told Zhou that there was no plane in Beidaihe. Something wasn't adding up. In the meantime, Dodo, out of concern for her family's safety or loyalty to the chairman, had told the guards of an imminent flight, which of course quickly got back to Beijing. In haste, Lin, Ye and their son boarded and took off with six others, headed for Russia. Joe asked Mao if the plane should be intercepted, but the ever-merciful Mao relented, saying, Lin Biao is still the vice chairman of our party central committee. It rains when it will. Girls will get married when they want. Let it be. An hour later, the plane went down in Mongolia. Everyone was dead. For me, the events surrounding the Lin Biao affair represent most brilliantly the shifting realities of life in China. Here was a guy who, beyond his loyalties to the army and the country, it's hard to say what his ambitions were. The official party narrative is that Lin Biao is the villain of the Cultural Revolution. This narrative began immediately after his death, as the Cultural Revolution in tandem with Mao's life, entered its final stage. Lin, too dead to defend himself, not that it would have helped, was the obvious scapegoat. Not only had he inflicted untold damage on the nation through the mess of the Cultural Revolution, but he had planned a coup d'etat. The page in the Little Red Book where Lin endorsed Mao was duly torn out as Lin was posthumously disgraced. Jiang Qing and the Gang of Four were of course added to the list of deplorables after Mao was gone, as for Mao himself, any errors he made are officially set up against his many successes. The party has stuck with this line ever since. But Lin was such a disturbed character. 
it's quite plausible that his Cultural Revolution excesses were down to an overactive survival instinct. Whether he was really planning a coup is doubtful, but if he was, then it wasn't because he craved the top spot. It also wasn't because he wanted to end the madness, which was where his son Li Guo was coming from. Lin Biao just didn't want to go the same way as Liu Xiaoqi, sick and untreated and left to rot in a cell, all because Mao's suspicions were allowed to fester into overload. And when he decided to take a run for it, and crashed in Mongolia, even this untimely end is a mystery. For all the magnanimous phrases that Mao could trot out about letting it be, everyone knew that this is how Mao operated. He was the world's preeminent poet-dictator. But did Mao really order Lin's plane to be shot down? Without a smoking gun hidden somewhere in unclassified records, the consensus seems to be no. The escape became rushed, and it's likely that they took off without enough fuel to get all the way to Russia. After Lin died, his record was used for Mao's ends and for Jiang Qing's ends, to achieve whatever propaganda need they had at the time. A criticise Lin, criticise Confucius campaign began, with the real target not being Lin Biao, who was dead, and not Confucius, who was very dead, but Zhou Enlai, who was almost dead. That such misdirection could be so subtle and yet so obvious, well, therein lies one of the key ingredients that makes China what it is. It's always good to keep things in perspective, for all the funny ways of the school and the strange deceptions which left me feeling hard done by. Unsure whether to stick with the job or get out of here, things could have been much worse. And I had ultimately decided to renew that contract. So now I too had a plane to catch, to go back to the UK for the summer. The only question was, should I return?